Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today on the program, NBA veteran Tyrone Muggsy Bogues. We'll converse about his book, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball, written with Jacob Ute and published by Triumph Books. It was released on April 12th. Tyrone Muggsy Bogues is one of the most identifiable players from an era when the NBA commercially catapulted into the stratosphere of global sport consumption. It was because of his size and because of his play. The two go hand in hand. It's incredible enough that he played 14 seasons in the association at 5'3". Even more impressive, he did it in the 80s and 90s when the league took no prisoners with its physicality. Don't believe me? Nate, I believe there's a few YouTube links that can be referenced. Yeah. Uh, back back then, it was like you fouled someone. You wanted them to stay fouled. Uh, you know, the Detroit <laughs> the Detroit Pistons, one being, you know, the self-styled bad boys. And all, all major sports tend to be copycat leagues. So that sort of in the league, you know, there was expansion from 23 to 29 teams in less than a decade. That's you know, maybe maybe dilutes the talent pool a little, and you know, coaches want coaches are you know they want to win, so they'll they'll institute that mentality. Well, Muggsy was ready for that no holds barred game, uh, in part because of his life growing up in the '60s, '70s, and '80s uh, in Baltimore. Um, in, in looking back at his career, though, and, and we'll we'll get to that in a moment, um, because he was really supported there, Nate, as you'll point out as well, and um, that's uh, on equal footing to the background itself. In, in looking back, he, he had a great impact in selling uh, two new franchises, and in, in particular, uh, the Charlotte Hornets, who he joined at the ground floor with expansion in 1988. Remember, Nate. Um, uh, the the Charlotte Hornets. I don't know whoever their marketing manager was, but uh, they they were brilliant, or they had a lot of money behind them because they bombarded the sports apparel market with teal. Um, it wasn't you know uncommon, and even a place like Kingston, Ontario, um, that you know you'd go down to to SNR, and you know this is pre Jordan. He doesn't have a you know his jerseys aren't particularly selling out at this point. I mean, when I say pre Jordan, I mean pre Jordan winning his championships. You know, you might see a, a Magic Johnson jersey, but you it seemed like everyone on the schoolyard had a starter Charlotte Hornets teal jacket or something to do with uh, with that team, whether it be a hat or a T-shirt. Indeed. <laughs> anyway, uh, um, basically, he was the face of that team at that time. This was before Larry Johnson was drafted. So, um, again, the marketability. And then when he comes to the Raptors in 1999, they're about to, to play in a new stadium. They've just left Skydome, and they're going to start playing in the Air Canada Centre. And he joined his friend Del Curry, and uh, they have a, lo- a lifelong friendship uh, between themselves and their families. And, um, the, you know, we'll touch on that a little bit later on in the interview. But, again, there was a marketability aspect there, and, um, and it directly ties back to his play. He, he's that good. 
Indeed. And it's funny, Neil, I, I sort of like in, uh, when you think of, you know, Muggsy Bogues playing in the NBA at five foot three, a lesson that was in a book Magic Johnson would have put out about 30 years ago. And he said, you know, whenever he saw a small, there was a sort of an idea among the players, a respect. If you saw a small player, you, you respect, you knew that guy was good because he, he always had to prove people to people he could play. Whereas, you know, someone who's, you know, won the genetics lottery, lottery and is six foot 11 had to prove they couldn't play uh and i you know i see that all all through sport sports you know you think of the the smaller uh scorers in hockey like hall of famer martin saint louis or you know current current nhlers like alex to and johnny goodrow who are like maybe five seven maybe five eight or knuckleball pitchers in baseball and uh you know, left-handed quarterbacks in football. I go back to when reading Steve Young's uh, autobiography, me having him having a college coach tell him, you know, a guy who ended up winning a Super Bowl and going to the Hall of Fame, the coach me like, "You'll never play quarterback here. I don't coach left-handers." So, and we go, coach. You know, people tend to want want what's conventional, and obviously, Muggsy Bogues being five foot three was unconventional, but he backed it up, and uh, his game has really stood the test of time. Uh, he led the league in assist to turnover ratio seven times, probably because you know he's his his the ball didn't come up as high when he dribbled. You think out of that scene in Winning Time when they're building in the tension, and Jerry West didn't want to draft Magic Johnson because he was he smiled too much and he was too tall to be a point guard. Uh, uh, Muggsy, you know, smiled a lot, but he also kept the ball kept the ball down. Uh, uh, pace factor wasn't something I don't think that had entered the NBA vernacular in the 90s, but his Hornets teams were in the, at the top of the league in that. They played fast because he, you know, got the ball, people to initiate the offense, and he, and he forced turnovers by reading the play. Uh, and he's still, you know, top 20 in the NBA in assists per game, and he's still top 20 in assist percentage, which is an obscure stat, but, it's, but just like it sounds, it's like what percentage of your teammates' baskets did you assist on while you were on the floor? Uh, I, I really enjoyed the book because uh, you learned where he came from just beyond, you know, some sweeping cliches about the inner city, not to, you know, devalue what, what that experience is, but you want, you know, instead of just having the rough s- sketch of it, you understand that he, he grew up loved, even though economic circumstances were not on his family side and that, you know, played into, you know, health outcome, health outcomes and life outcomes for his brother and his dad and the challenges that he and his mom and, and sister that they that they all faced in Baltimore. I, you know, we can relate to that a little, especially, you know, I, Baltimore's a port city. Ham, I live in Hamilton, which is also a port city that's just, you know, been challenged by, you know, deindustrialization. Fun fact, David Byrne of the Talking Heads spent part of his uh, upbringing in both both cities and said they were a, a lot alike, Neil. Hmm. Well, that that is something I did not know. Yeah, you're you're right. The the you know the the way it's it's written with Jacob Ut about you know how he supported it is 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 really interesting to read. And um, yeah, I mean, going back to his toughness, um, you know, whatever factors contributed to that. Certainly, he writes about as a five year old getting hit with buckshot in the arm. And, you know, going to the NBA in that tough era, you look at the first uh, eight seasons, um, you can count on your hands how many games he missed. Now, whether that was because, you know, he knew he didn't, he couldn't pull himself out of a game, maybe he was lower, the, you know, lower center of gravity, whatever it was, he, he, he played and he played consistently. Yeah, I, and I was impressed. I, you know, over time, you sort of for, forget things and connections. Uh, 
I sort of knew that Muggsy Bogues had played on this legendary uh, high school team, the Dunbar Poets in Baltimore, that went undefeated for two seasons in a row, and all 15 players on the team got Division One scholarships. Four of them played in the NBA. Three were first-rounders in the same draft, including Muggsy and the late Reggie Lewis, but I had not realized that Muggsy's first NBA playoff game was against the Boston Celtics, and it was the game in April of 93 when Reggie Lewis collapsed on the court from a, from a heart ailment and then, you know, died a, f- a few months late, later after collapsing during a, during a pickup game. And you're just like, wow, like just the, the fact that, you know, the, you know, that's my friend on the court and we don't know what's, what's happened to him. And, and he still kept, you know, but I still have to be like the nerve center, the, you know, the fulcrum of, of a basketball team as, as the point guard and, and to just keep it together. And it's mm-hmm. just like, you know, that's taking your, that takes your breath away. And it seems like a lot of that, you know, fortitude that Muggsy got, you know, was imparted by, you know, women in his family and his life, his, you know, his late mom, his sister Sharon, uh, and of course his, you know, wife Kim Bogues, who had an amazing uh, life arc of her own, starting, you know, going to work in the TV industry and ended up being part of the show's The Wire uh, and uh, Veep, which stars another, uh, I think, Maryland native, someone named Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, and 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 you, you know, you talk about the yeah. His wife ended up is is now, I believe, a, a chef on on sets, right? Yeah. Um. Um. And, and you know, there yeah, there is a thread in here for sure about um, you know, giving a lot of uh, credit and 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 bigging up uh, women's sport. You know, he coached uh, the Charlotte Sting. Um, you talked about the women in his family, and and there is a, a little note in there uh, again talking about his friend Del Curry. He says Steph and Seth. Both got their shooting ability, no doubt, from their dad, but their toughness they got from their mother, Sonia. Of course, he knows the family really well. Yeah, and that's often the case with uh, second, third generation pro athletes. You know, the father's he's he's gone half the time on road trips, right? So it's the mom who's you know right. get, you know imparting the discipline, getting them getting them to practice. Uh, and you know, in terms of you know, thanks, Captain. Obvious uh, observations. I guess the other one that we need to impart because we're for our listeners is you got to remember the nba and wnba is are the hardest uh you know combined are the hardest major sports to break into because basketball is the second most played sport on the planet but there's also it also has the smallest uh playing rosters and in terms of the women's league there's only 12 teams we hope hope some it'll get bigger we hope toronto would, would be part of it uh, but yeah, Muggsy Bogues not only got there, he stayed there for for a decade, decade and a half, and before uh, before he had to before calling it a day uh, and leaving on his own terms. Uh, one thing in this the one line sort of it's vaguely aphoristic, but it stuck with me was just this line: "But it takes time to build anything good that will last." That you know definitely seems to apply to how he's gone through it through all stages and. No way. He, he and his wife, you know, drifted apart and then got got back to get together before remarrying on his fiftieth birthday. Very cool. Uh, Neil, I guess in, just in terms of wrapping up the intro and getting to what people want to hear, we should we should <laughs> mention this is our fourth our fourth uh, basketball book episode. And just like the NBA Finals, we're recording this on the day of Game Five. We're we're tied at two two in terms of episodes with basketball with writers <laughs> and episodes with former players. <laughs> yeah, ah, that's a good point, Nate. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, a little fancy stat there. Um, 
yeah small and, sample size though <laughs> hey you know what if you want to you know uh read or sorry hear about any of these or hear any of these episodes you can go to our website sportslit.ca where those books nate talked about as episodes of spencer haywood uh rule the spencer haywood rule uh we the north doug smith uh and three ring circus with jeff perlman um those are on our website as is every episode at sportslit.ca and you can Listen to the episodes and also buy any of the books, including this one we're about to talk about with Muggsy Bogues. So, um, again, the show is about to start. And we're back and very excited to have Muggsy Bogues with us today. So, Nate, let's get right into it and take it away with our first question. Indeed. Nice to meet you, Muggsy. Uh, of course, the sub- subtitle of the book is The Godfather of Small Ball. What do you believe um, most ties the way you played the game back in the 90s to the current NBA? Well, uh, yeah, the kid from the projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Um, I mean, the way the game is today, I mean, it's literally, you know, s- small ball in terms of the positionings um, where they kind of don't have any true position these days. Um, you know, me, I was literally talking about playing it from a small angle, from a small perspective, um, and, and, and giving people an understanding of an idea of what my thought process was in terms of trying to navigate, navigate through, you know, those big trees and through the naysayers, I should say. Um, so, but the game today, you know, I still enjoy it. I love it. Um, but that, I think the meaning of small ball in regards to today's game is definitely because there's no positions out there anymore. Oh, true, and uh, it wasn't didn't surprise me when I went back and you know I, I'm a stats guy. I looked looked and saw wow your Charlotte teams they were always up there in what is now become an everyday stat pace factor. Uh, in, the, in the more recent time times as a, as a as a follower of the league, when did you see the change uh, to, to to today's game taking place throughout the whole NBA? Well, that's more or less, it was a transition. Um, it's probably in the later 2000, and I retired in 2001. But you could start seeing the game ladder part the, uh, uh, as it continued to go on the early, the early ons in the 2000. Uh, right around, I think, 2009, 10, you start to shift. I mean, you, you they start changing the rules. Uh, they constantly, you know, have to try to implement and based on the skill set of the players. I mean, now, you, again, like we talk about seven-footers, you know, back in our day, they play with their back towards the basket. Uh, today's game, they bring the basketball up the floor. Yeah. Well, you said it. It's it's the rules. And and that that was my that's my question. And, and the casual fan will now be watching the NBA Finals. So for the casual fan, they're going to hear, hey, the league was tougher back then. Uh, the rules have changed to create more space. So to that casual fan that just tunes in for the finals, can you explain what the rule changes were when they happened? You did, you did touch on that, but what the rule changes were and what it did. Well, I guess they more catered towards the offensive player. I think they felt like the game was maybe too physical, one would say, or maybe they felt like the defensive player had more leeway than the offensive player uh, because back then you used to hand check. Um, we had no three-second uh, 2.9 rule where you I mean, camp in the lane all day long. Um, so the game has been expanded, has been opened up, and again, it's, it's predicated more or less to the, to the skill set today. And plus, 
fans, and I think the league wants to see a lot more entertainment, and that brings more scoring. So um, in that regards, it makes the game a lot more, again, fun. Um, but now you hear a lot of guys complain about that, you know, the game is too soft. It's not honest <laughs> to play, you know, physical enough in terms of and not being able to be a defensive uh, presence as opposed to being just offensively minded. Well, we're going to ask you about uh, the finals later. We usually focus on the uh, directly on the book, but since you brought it up, that was a, quite the interesting uh, Draymond Green uh, quote that went viral after I think it was Game Three, three where he was calling out all the uh, all the old old guards saying back in the day, my day, I was tough. He said there's there's like three tough guys like Lambeer and Mahorn, and well, he said everyone else was getting punked. Did you did you read that or watch that comment? And did you get a chuckle out of it? Oh, I'm quite sure anybody get a chuck out of it. Um, you know, in terms of uh, the tougher guys back then, he he don't realize how many tough guys were back then. You know, he missed. Mm-hmm. You know, he just mentioned two guys that he probably just seen in the internet: <laughs> uh, Rick Mahorn and Lambert. I mean, yeah, we had Marcus Johnson and all sorts of guys back then uh, that was in forces. But I mean, and that's what Draymond understand. I mean, that's where it is today. And he speaks it to where he knows how physical it is in terms of how he's trying to play and uh, in terms of hearing it on the back end in his ear that, you know, the, the game is a lot softer than it is today than it was back then. And, I mean, it, it just, again, as we talked about, it's all about the roots, the rules that was implemented. Before we uh, travel uh, forward in your career, uh, I want to go backwards and um... – I want to ask you. Well, you 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 just mentioned it. You know, when Nate asked you about the title of the book, uh, one part we didn't mention was it starts off with my life from a kid in the projects to the Godfather of small ball. Um, why was it important for you to have that in the title? Well, that's where it all begins. You know, that's the the beginning. You can't go to the end without talking about the beginning and what made me who I am. Um, coming from that inner city. Um, the experience that I had there, that I went through, uh, the things that I endured, the dramatic um, uh, experience I had to overcome in terms of being shot at the age of five. I mean, all that kind of made me who I am and made me the player that I was and had to share, you know, some of that and talk about the blessings as well that was given to me in order for to become the player that I was. So we tapped upon a lot of things growing up in the inner city. Uh, relationship-wise, people that that had touched me growing up, who impacted me, and then you know as a player, uh, and, and by the name of Dwayne Woods for being that type of you know smaller player that I first saw that had success. So you know a lot of things that happened that I wanted to mention to give people more of a an assessment of who I am. For sure, and uh, you write in the book that it, it took time to be able to talk about anything. Where, where did you need to go to be mentally ready to talk about those things in in book form and work with an author about conveying it? Well, I did one early on in, you know, in 90, 93, 94, when my pops had passed and a good friend of Reggie Lewis had, had passed. Um, you know, and then having already to be able to, you know, share some of that and be able to talk about it, um, it just gave it a lot more... Uh, feeling, I mean, more and more comfortability because again, it was it was tough even doing that first one, uh, being able to share. I was a more of a, a, a soft-spoken guy. I didn't want to 
have to talk about the things that I have to go through in order to be the person that you are. But as you go and forward, you know, you never know the things that you go through can help someone else. And uh, that was one of the main reasons that I wanted to share this opportunity because it's been a while since I had, um, since the end of line of justice was out there. And um, so that's why I want to put this one. Yeah, let's 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 go into that a little bit. And you work with uh, Jacob UT on this, and um, you obviously, yeah, opened up in new ways. Um, I, I want to know as a player who, who you know dealt with criticisms from journalists, and you, you know you 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 point out, uh, for example, the Tony Kornheiser quote in the book. Um, how was it being on the other end per se? Now I know this isn't traditional journalism where he's writing a game story and critiquing, but. You know, Jacob UT is a journalist, and and how, how was it being on the other side of, of that uh, and 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 writing this book um, between the two of you? Uh, it was unique. It was you know it was, it was different from my first one, but this was unique, and I really enjoyed Jake working with him because you know we was able to capture it and put it in the proper contents, and you know not duplicate what I did in that in the land of Giants book. Um, this was more of a substance i should say mm-hmm. and being able to impact not only the players that i play with uh, coming with Mont Domaira, but some of the current players in today's game and like the stephen Curry's and the chris pauls of the world um you know being able to have the grant the grant uh, Wayne, the grant hill and the damian lillard and all those guys to be able to speak upon you and not knowing you know how you affected those and and some of the relationships not only with the players but with me and my now current wife who when we got divorced you know 10 years and being able to find each other back you know after all those years of being separated with one another and you know which is kind of unusual so hopefully a couple can you know understand those type of things as well any uh, any uh, kind of uh, new respect for the the craft of writing and journalism at all uh when doing this oh always respect <laughs> Definitely, always will. Uh, you get, you have a totally different perspective of, it, but you you know you got more of a respect of what goes behind the scene because it's not easy, you know, in terms of putting it all together and making it flow the way it need to flow, and, and everything need to be in the right popular place. And um, so, I you know you guys are always been at the high regards, but it's even more, you know, now that I had the opportunity to see behind the scenes. Hmm. And what what do you hope that, especially in the early chapters, what do you hope pe- readers will appreciate about what was sort of happening to your neighborhood in Baltimore while you were growing up from you know childhood through your teens? Well, just uh, um, I mean, uh, not so much just what all, but just 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 the individual itself, like a person, just a kid, a young individual, someone that had a, a passion for something. Who just had a really true passion, and he just, you know, chased it each and every day, uh, regardless of what was being said or what was, you know, being criticized or laughed upon. You know, he just believed within, regardless of any situation, any obstacle, any adversity, that he sees something totally different what everybody else sees. And he did not let anybody, you know, take him off of that path and derail him in another different direction. Yeah, and in that environment, too, because you were dealing with a lot around you uh, as well, not just the basketball and, and being critiqued. I mean, Baltimore was 
was definitely uh, going through some stuff at that time and still is, right? Oh, yeah. And then that was the challenge within. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it was a challenge once you even walked outside your door. And But that, that, that comes with the, you know, the passion and the understanding of what I was what I was carrying around in my head and the vision that I was seeing that I wasn't just limited myself to what I was already faced with and being able to have that vision, you know, a bigger picture get me more focused than people can ever imagine in terms of the steps that you have to keep taking in order to get to the ultimate goal, which was, you know, being successful in life, it didn't have necessarily do with basketball. Well, let, let us let us now switch to basketball. Um, and um, and Nate, yeah, I mean, right early on with the with the Dunbar poets, Nate, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So Bob Wade, uh, your your high school coach in, in Dun, at Dunbar High, uh, how did he advance your career? What did he? What tools did he sort of help you develop to be successful? Oh, I mean, Coach Wade was everything to all of us. I mean, it is. He was a man that been there and done it i mean he was a former collegiate athlete i mean he served the purpose in each of our lives for different reasons i mean a lot of us didn't have fathers in our homes um so being able to have that type of mentor that that got it i mean and being on a team that has so much talent i mean he was the ultimate leader i mean he understood i mean he was very empathetic he understood where we came from i mean he knew how much talent we had on that team, so he made everybody accountable. And he gave us vision, as I alluded to. He gave us vision. Did you understood what the task was? But most importantly, we had gratitude. We was grateful for wanting to be with each other, but also the understanding of the task at hand and how we was able to, you know, conduct ourselves on and off the court because he always preached discipline, you know, character. Yeah. Got- and he also uh, he also made you practice in a unique way with some bricks, right? Well, yeah, that that was a means of him getting our mind occupied and getting us ready for the game. And it didn't necessarily have to do with just dribbling a basketball. You know, we practiced with bricks in our hands, sandbags on our back. And like I said, he was a former football player, and we didn't have the type of equipment in our facility. So he pretty much came, got creative, I should say. Uh, but those things worked because in the fourth quarter, our hands became much stronger. And we didn't lose the basketball, turn it over and all that. And it felt like we was always in the best uh, condition than any other team. And and you write highly about, about that team as the best basketball team ever. Uh, so can you tell the listeners who, you know, may not have read the book yet, why were the Dunbar Poets in that era, I think it's the early 80s, why were they the best, uh, in your mind, the best basketball team out of high school ever? Yeah, 81, 82, 82, 83, yeah. We was we was fortunate enough to go 59 and 0 for two seasons. Uh we had some unbelievable talent. Myself, uh David Wingate, the late Reggie Lewis, and Reggie Williams, who we all fortunate enough was able to make it in to the NBA, four of us, and three of us got drafted in the same draft in the first round, which made history that year. But the entire team had all 15 players had Division One scholarships. So being able to have that much talent on the team, and uh, back then the college coaches didn't come to our games to recruit us because we used to beat teams pretty soundly. I mean, double figures. They came to our practice to get a better assessment <laughs> of that because they felt like there was a better competition. And that's mainly how a lot of us got recruited through that. 
Moving uh, moving ahead to um, the FIBA World Championships, uh, what did the 1986 FIBA World Championships do for your career, and and how um, common was it for uh, an American to play internationally? Uh, was it was it something that was done a lot, or were most people just ignoring that part of the game to go to the NBA? No, that was that was special. I mean, anytime you get an opportunity to put the USA across your chest, that's always an honor. And then being in college and being a collegiate you know, uh, organizations and being able to go and represent your country in that regards. I mean, that was something that we was all looking forward to. And it definitely had answered your question. It put my career definitely right up there on a level to where now the NBA scouts and the NBA organizations have to now give me a, a true considered look as opposed to just, you know, maybe, no, nah, I don't think he's too small. But being able to play against those guys and that type of talent you know, allowed me to be looked at in a different light. And winning a gold medal was such a special moment. You know, again, you knew back then there was a little terrorism going on at that time, and uh, Steve Perry lost his dad and everything. So it was, it was, um, it was challenging back then. Yeah. What? What? Now, nowadays, of course, it's the NBA players in, in international basketball. But back then, uh, you know, the United States sent you know the best college players. You know, what, what, what did, how much pressure did you guys feel as, you know, 21-year-olds that you've got to, you know, make sure that the Americans don't lose? Because at that point, their only loss had been 72, I think, which was kind of a, a schmozzle. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think we didn't feel any pressure because we were just, again, we was looked upon as college players and they were looked upon as professionals. And, um, and fortunate enough for us, we were the last collegiate team to, to bring home the gold medal uh, when the 88 team lost. Um, and then 92, then they start sending the dream team in 92, and then that was the end of the college players. But we, um, I mean, it was very special back then because, again, uh, we was not supposed to have won. We weren't uh, considered to be the favorites, and the Yugoslavia and as well as uh, the Russian team was, was the favorites with the likes of the Sabonis, Arena Sabonis, and the late Godwin Patrick. Yeah, indeed. Or Vita Sabonis. There's there's footage on YouTube of him in his prime at the USSR, and he's just he, he's what he's what guys are like now, like Luka Doncic. He's 35 years ahead of them. Uh, Bugsy, in writing in writing the book, what what did it remind you about you know tough, determined women in your life? Your you know your mom and your your sister and and your wife Kim Bogues. Oh, how special they are! How life wouldn't be without women in our life. If this world, if they decided. That they didn't want to go to work anymore and want to deal with us anymore and have kids. Can you imagine what this world would be like? So they were so inspirational in, in my in my life. Um, and it started with my mom. Um, had no idea what basketball was or what it, you know, what it meant. But she just knew her kid enjoyed playing it. And she just gave me all the support in the world, even though, you know, we used to be laughed upon quite a bit. Uh, but she always just say, Ty, no one could be an expert on your life. No one knows your potentials or your capability, and they sure can measure your heart. And that's something that always resonated and stuck with me. And then my sister, seeing her play, you know, as playing with the boys, as a small girl, not there competing. And I'm like, oh, man, I can do that. I want to do that. And, uh, and she just been such that person in my life. And, I would, you know, and then, of course, my lovely wife being able to, have another strong woman that represent and that emulates, you know, my mother and my sister. I mean, it was breathtaking. 
Um, so it, it hurts when, you know, you don't have them with you, you know, even to this day. You know, my mom been gone since 2001, and it felt like it was yesterday, and I lost my sister in 2015. Yeah, we, you write highly of both of them in the book. Um, and, uh, in fact, uh, basically, you were with the Raptors when, when your, your mother passed, and that was how you essentially exited the game, right? Yeah, yeah, I was. I just got traded from the Raptors, and I uh, happened. It was with the New York Knicks coming off of uh, that season, and my mom got lower, uh, got worse than she was, and I had three years left on my contract. And fortunate enough for me, you know, Mark Cuban, who was on in the team at the time, he uh, he granted me, you know, and honored my contract all the way up to 2004. He basically just took me off the books. Because it felt like my salary probably would have put them over the salary cap. So I was saving them a little money, and he did me a favor, so I was so thankful. Thank you for correcting me on that, yes. Um, so back, back to the, the theme of strong women. Uh, you played against Nancy Lieberman, um, <laughs> and, and you write about that, and, and again, write very uh, highly of her game. Uh, so for those out there that don't know who Nancy Lieberman is, uh, who was she, and, and how, did, uh, how would you judge her game? Uh, Nancy Lieberman was one of the most unbelievable female players of our game. And uh, you, people who talked about the Cheryl Swoops and all that, Nancy Lieberman was right up there as among all of them. I mean, she was a guard, a uh, little white guard, who had so much skill and had the opportunity to play against her in the USBL. And before I joined the NBA, they had a league uh, before the, uh, took place before the draft. And I took part of it, and I had the opportunity to play against her. And boy, was I fearful a little bit because I couldn't let a woman show me up on the on the biggest stage that I have been on. So uh, I wanted to make sure that I tried to contain her as much as I possibly could and not let her get by me. And uh, we always have a good chat about that game, and uh, I respect the call uh, so dearly. You know, and you, you you moved on to to coach in the WNBA. So you've with the Charlotte Sting. So you've really you really got to see the progression of the women's game. You know, from playing against Nancy Lieberman to seeing the creation of the WNBA and coaching in it. So that must have been um, quite an experience to see that all unfold in front of your eyes. Absolutely, I was so thankful to have an opportunity to be able to coach the women um, because my opportunity of watching them and, and seeing them. Um, college and all that, and you know, during my days, I mean, you never really dive into and really looked at the the true essence of what they put into it. I mean, they've really focused on the fundamentals of the game of basketball. Not saying that they're not athletic, but they truly focus on the fundamental of the game. And I was so so not surprised, but I was so thrilled to see how professional, how skilled they were. Um, they came in every day, professional. They, they treated the game as such, and they wanted to get better. And, they, um, and that's something that, again, the game is always going to be in a good place when you got ladies looked upon in that way. And I hope that the WNBA do a lot more of really promoting the women's game and the stuff that we talked about are how strong women are. I think they don't get their due in terms of how they are really affecting and impacting the game. And maybe we'll see a franchise in Toronto. Uh, maybe so. <laughs> Um, so, uh, speaking of the game evolving, uh, and before we get into your, your, your NBA career, um, by the time you had hit your prime, you filmed Space Jam, you had a, your own documentary and action figure. 
Um, again, seeing as how we just talked about the game evolving, how did you see this play out in real time of how, you know, what we had Spencer Haywood on the podcast mm-hmm. a few years ago, and, you know, he played at a time when the NBA, I think the finals were, were tape delayed, you know? So when you're coming up as a high school guy, the NBA is kind of sinking a little bit. Um, but by the time you're at your prime, you've, you know, you filmed Space Jam, as you, as I just said, and, um, the league is just, uh, catapulted into the stratosphere. <laughs> how surreal was that to, uh, to experience in real time? Yeah, the league, I mean, it, it's, it's a global game. I mean, you got so many different players from different countries that take part in our game now. And you got to credit that, of course, from the late David Stern. And then Adam Sullivan just taking it to a whole new level. And it's great for the game. I mean, it's great to have kids all around the world thinking and dreaming, believing that they could be this Michael Jordan of the world. You know, this Donich, this uh, Luka Donich, Donich uh, the Greek freak, Giannis, and, 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 and Cooper with it. And, and I can't even get in Tuka Pope with that. <laughs> Nate, you want to take a crack at that? Was Giannis? Ah, good God of my. Oh yeah, man, I, I, I can. Sp- I, I'm better at spelling it than saying it. Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yep, Antetokounmpo. It's that. It's The alphabet is hiding, hiding in there. Yeah, but it's just amazing where the game has gone. I mean, we got and I people always ask me, do we think we're going to see another? Five foot three kid. And I told my wish. I hope because we got kids now in the Philippines that's dreaming, <laughs> in India that's dreaming that possibly could possibly want you could play in the NBA. And these are countries that not known for, you know, height. So who knows what may happen? Uh, but I'm just thankful for the game where it's gone and uh, and how it's gone because it's it's very entertaining. Yeah. When you, when you, I mean, I, I'm assuming you were probably just so focused on just making the league, but I mean, as a kid, I mean, what was the experience of even trying to watch an NBA game on TV? I mean, was it there for you or, or was it the type of thing you had to seek out because the league was sinking at that time? Yeah. It, I mean, I wasn't a big watching NBA back then, mm-hmm. even though I had the Baltimore bullets in our neighborhood in their backyard, but it wasn't a big thing uh, back growing up until I got to college. And again, it still was delayed games, as you alluded to. The games were not being showed over in certain countries, and they had to kind of wait and go and see a tape delayed. And now today, I go overseas, we get it live. I'm sitting there doing the game where I'm watching it 7 o'clock in the morning in Singapore <laughs> uh, based upon because of, you know, the game has gone and TV partners have came on board to take part in our game. In regard to um, your success as, you know, a businessman through basketball, um, I'm going to read you a part from your book. And then I want to ask you a question about anybody trying to become profitable in whatever sport they play um, any player. So you write, I'm no fool. I know none of this would have happened if I wasn't a good basketball player who put up numbers and made my team better. If I was averaging one point and one assist in three minutes of garbage time on a team that never made the playoffs, no one would have ever called me on my phone or sent me any movie job offers. So my question is, there's players across pro sports, across anything right now, they want to brand themselves on Instagram. And, and how important is it to have... 
Um, you know, how important is it for your play to drive your brand, quote unquote? Uh, important to drive my brand. Well, not yours. For for anybody coming up, because it seems like a sexy thing to say, hey, listen, like, I'm a whatever player in this league, you know, automatically my brand should be worth something. But, I mean, Jordan's brand wasn't Jordan's brand because, you know, Jordan looked like Mike. It was because he won, you know? Well, absolutely. And, and your play should always dictate, you know, how or what your extra activities or extra endorsement may be or this and that. But in today's world, you know, social media, because anybody can use, because everybody is a brand these days, you know, and, and hopefully they understand that and how to, you know, keep their market their way in the right way to keep themselves to where they've been successful. Because everybody don't have the likeness to be the LeBron James. Or, right. Stephen Curry's of the world. It, you know, you were a veteran player on, on some teams with some young stars. I mean, the it's same situation isn't isn't now that it was then. But, you know, do you think it's up to some of the vets, you know, to, to, to maybe tell some of the young guys, hey, listen, um, you know, let, let, let's stick to the play and then and then everything else will follow. Oh, the vets. Yeah, well, the vets, you know, that's what they do. You know, and that's what they they pretty much understand. Uh, and they uh, how the lend their leadership and when people you know been around the game as long as they have and and people respect that then that's what comes with the territory and i think that a lot of young players really need that especially today mm-hmm. and and Muggsy, one line in the book that you of yours that literally is just like looping in my head is uh it takes time to build anything good that will last i i i you know tied that to you know being a long-time fan of the Toronto Raptors and their climb to winning the NBA title in 2019. I was just curious to know, you were you were on their very first playoff team. and What were the feelings like for you when they won that title, albeit against a team you had also played for? Oh, it was special. I mean, it, and you're right, it does take time to build something special, and people got to understand that how to be patient when they got a plan. I mean, you can't deviate from the plan. That's what, you know, that's what it's all about. But when you're patient enough and then you see that plan come to a fruition, man, it's so awesome. And I'm so thankful to being part of the organization that got the witness, you know, that they was able to accomplish that goal uh, because it was so great, not only for the organization, but for the entire country, you know, because that's what the Raptors and that's what they mean in terms of support. And when you have that type of support, you should be rewarded in the ultimate goal, which is the Larry O'Brien trophy. What were your experiences when you first got here? Uh, you know, coming off the plane, I think you read about it being cold. Uh, where did you Where did you live in Toronto? And 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 I know you are you're really happy to have uh, Steph Curry's dad, Del Curry, with you here, and that's the reason why you signed. Well, yeah, Del and I signed together. I mean, we uh, pretty much uh, stayed downtown. I did anyway. I stayed at uh, Harbor Forty Harbor Ninety Nine building, mm-hmm. very close to the to the ACC Arena. And uh, that was something that I was, you know, so grateful for. Um, but I just love the atmosphere, the culture in Toronto. Of course, you know, I'm there all the way, all the time now. Um, but it was, a, it was a culture shock at the beginning, but I, I got accustomed to it very quickly. And, I mean, in, in a sense, too, I mean, aside from your great play, and, I mean, they're building, with, you know, around a brand with Vince, per se, that, I mean, you you do you did bring a cachet, right? I mean, you were an attraction around the league. 
um, that they could build around as well. I mean, do you remember them as part of signing there wanting to market you? Well, yeah, I felt that as well. You know, I felt like I had uh, um, marketable uh, ability in terms of being part of organization, and they felt that. And the leadership, you know, we had some character guys on the team, myself, Charles Oakley, Antonio Davis, Kevin Willis, along with the T-Mac and, and Tracy McGrady, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Doug Christie as well, D. Brown. So guys who had, you know, national names, uh, but it felt good knowing that you were being part of something that could lead to something special. So in, in the text, um, you write about um, in Charlotte, had Charlotte not traded Kobe and you have the vision of throwing him alley-oops and, and, and all that stuff. My question, I guess, in relation to Toronto, keeping that in mind is um, when it comes to Vince and T-Mac, had they shown more maturity and commitment to play a more complete game as Butch Carter wanted? How uh, do, you, do you foresee any, you know, the success happening sooner? Had they committed to that? Uh, it would have been scary between those two. I mean, they was young, and everybody saw them last Michael and Scotty, and, and they really had that type of ability. Of course, as you saw throughout their career, the, the type of level that they was able to display on, on a nightly basis. But I really believe that they would have stayed together if they was a little more mature. But, again, they were so young. They would have seen it, and they could have shared it, and they would have won for quite some time. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, and, st and sticking with the expansion motif, uh, Le LeBron James last week said he wants to own a team in Vegas. There's talk about the league when the next TV deals negotiated, there'll be new teams. Uh, as someone who played for you know two franchises when they were getting started, what 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 advice would you give to someone about starting a team from scratch in in, in the NBA now? Oh, well, I mean, I couldn't give him any advice. I mean, I'm quite sure he understand it more than I do. But the best thing is, do you know, when you're putting any, you know, infrastructure together, you know, it starts from the top. Leadership, you know, making sure that you got everything is in place, you know, everybody in place, and then making sure that, you know, you do the greatest job in the world in terms of bringing in the right players. Well, speaking of, um, in the book, uh, Dick Vitale basically says, hey, Muggsy played in the league for 14 years at 5'2 or 5'3. Uh, People ask me what the chances are of seeing another Muggsy Bogues. I don't think I'll see it in my lifetime. So my question to you is, for that to happen, would it take someone like you to actually be in a position of power with the team to take a chance on a guy, whether he's out of the Philippines or whether he's out of Baltimore? I, I hope it don't take that in, the, in terms of having someone to make that determination that a guy is talented as a guy that that size that he will be given an opportunity um it's all about how he impacts the game and how he's out there really impacting the game in a way and i was able to do that you know i was able to do it in a way where scoring out always wasn't at the forefront um defensively just being able to change the team running your team so it all depends on whoever that individual is and how strongly he's displaying his impact on the floor because what I wanted to do, I want to make sure, no doubt, that I belongs on that floor with the best of them. And being able to do it is being able to perform with the best of them. You, you brought up the Philippines uh, specifically. Are you getting, did you notice you're getting a lot more fan mail uh, from from that part of the world? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and maybe even, you know, people looking up to you that, that want to play in the NBA uh, from there? Well, I do get quite a bit um, 
fan mail from the Philippines, and I'm thankful for it, as well as some of the other countries. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's a fun city. It's a, it's a fun size uh, country that I always say. You know, we we at that fun size, and we all relate to one another. But <laughs> if we can always inspire someone, like I say, I believe, hopefully, uh, hopefully in my lifetime that I can see that player. I mean, my grandson, he's only he's a little taller than me, so he's beyond five two. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he won't be that one, um, but he's small in stature. He might be another five five or five five guy out there playing. But hopefully we can get a five two. I want a five two. <laughs> um, I I I I guess in closing, um, why why did you feel compelled to address that Michael Jordan rumor in the book? <laughs> he tried to finally quash it. Um, oh. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, people kept asking about this and that, and I'm like. I mean, because they really took it serious. I'm like, really? I mean, I played all these years, and you tell me when I uh, at the tenth year of my league, I mean, in the lead, that if somebody gonna say something that's gonna derail me. So I had to put it in context of what all happened and how my knee, how I had surgery, and so forth, for people to understand, I guess. But again, they still probably <laughs> don't want to believe it. <laughs> can Can you give our our, re, our listeners a, a a little bit of background on what the what the rumor was and when it happened? Well, the rumor was they said Michael had called me, and, and um, you know, and that's why I say you know, it's, it's in today's world, you know, you gotta be careful how you call people, right? And naming, and he, you know, he want, and they said that he called me a midget, which would have been okay. You know, I, I'm I'm comfortable with my size. I feel I'm okay with who I am. So. For someone that called me a midget or little fat, whatever it is, I mean, is that gonna take my confidence away? That's so that was was a little more ridiculous, and that was was being said that he um, called me a midget, and from that I missed a shot, and my career hasn't been the same since. Right, and that was it. I think was it the playoffs, right, or ninety yeah. five or ninety six. It was ninety four, right? Ninety four playoff, ninety four, ninety five, and then I missed the entire season. After that, because of my knee. Right. Yeah, well, quite obviously, one of those horrible misinformation uh, things that, are, that we see far too much. And, and so, yes, that's why you dispelled it. Nate, you have a couple yeah, of questions? Yeah. It sounds like that was maybe just a bit of an urban legend that people couldn't you know, refute because not everything was on the Internet internet yet. But uh, I kind of wanted to ask, when you look back on your career, like what achievement, you know, maybe statistically, are, are you proudest of? Well, you know what, you know, I never look at anything in regards of the game and the accolades, individual accolades. I always go back to the very first day that it all happened when I got drafted. You know, I think that moment kind of did it all, not only for me and my family, but for a small kid that still believes that he could be drafted highly. You know, go to bed, shake the commissioner hand, put that hat on just like anyone else. You know, people don't understand how big a deal that is, and that's the beginning of it. I want uh, I want to ask you. Sorry, Nate, did you have another one? Oh no, I should point out the yeah, you were went fourteenth overall, and I admit that 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 kind of went against my expectations. I figured, well, this guy, you know, Muggsy must have played his way in as like a like like Fred Van Vliet did with the Raptors or twelve you know. twelve overall. Twelve. You, you you took me down two spots. Twelve. Twelve, <laughs> yes. Pardon me. I was thinking of your jersey number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and you know, that first year you write 
quite candidly about Washington. I mean, it made me think about, you know, what were they thinking if they, you know, they, they, they didn't really play you the way they should have, right, in that first year? Yeah, I mean, at the end of it, yeah, they didn't. Um, and I, it, we had a, a, a change of coaches. You know, Kevin Lockery was, uh, was my original coach, and then they got Wes Unsell. A lot of part of this during the uh, probably had the 15, 20 games during the season, and then you know West was from the old school. Uh, May rest in peace, and he, he liked that old style game. Uh, we had those type of players, and the Moses Malone, the late Moses Malone, uh, Bernard King, and uh, Terry Catlers, and those guys. So that's what they you know they felt comfortable with. They wanted to play a little bit bigger, and 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 then that kind a of a lot slower, a lot slower. slower. That's what you said. Yes, slower. They wanted to play slower, which yeah. Um, so one of the last questions I have is, you know, there seemed to be a, a, a tone of a Hall of Fame push in this in this book. Um, you know, when, I, when we, we interviewed Spencer Haywood, Spencer Haywood, there seemed to be a push towards, you know, he wanted people to recognize the Spencer Haywood rule. How important is it to you to, to I mean, obviously, that, I guess that's a pretty basic question. Anyone would want to get to the Hall of Fame. But I mean, did was that su- a subplot to this book? Did you think the timing of releasing it now is there any kind of motivation to, to kind of get that ball rolling? No, nah, not for me. I mm. mean, that's for other people to judge and decide if I need to be part of that that fraternity. You know, I just played the game and played it the best of my ability and try to, you know, show the world that everybody is capable, no matter how big, tall, or short he is, that they have the ability, then they should be given that opportunity. And that's what I want to more or less uh, kind of, make sure that everybody understood and just to, you know, kind of give a behind the scene of what it took for me to get to the place that I got to and the people that impacted me, the people I impacted. And um, hopefully that, you know, by being more of a heartfelt motivation type of inspirational book that someone can look at their situation and possibly not dwell on what they think is a negative and more or less turn into a positive. To forego our commitment of, of being evergreen, I got to ask you, the finals, uh, we're going to release this probably just ahead of game six. Tonight is game five. Steph uh, playing with that foot uh, injury the other night. Was that a, you know, was that a flu game-esque type of uh, performance from him? Uh, and what, do you, what have you been seeing in that final? Give us any of your, your input on what, what you've seen so far. The series is tied 2-2 NBA Finals right now between Golden State and Boston and what you're seeing going forward. Um, I'm loving this series. I am truly loving this series because you got two of the best defensive teams out there as well as one of the most offensive juggernauts that they're going up against. So seeing the strategy, the the game planning, how to um, let one be effective than the other, it's been beautiful. And watching... You know, Boston and their first time in coach being able to impact the game with these guys and have them playing the lifestyle basketball is unbelievable. But watching Steph and just seeing his his whole maturation of who he is and what he is, and, and at this stage of his, his career, 34 years old, uh, still putting up these type of numbers. And the numbers to where he's got to carry the load because of certain, you know, performance of some of his teammates. And watching him, it just – it just brings you joy knowing that this is the kid that you was given that airplane ride at the age of four years old in the locker room. And now is considered the greatest shooter ever been lacing 
up to play in the NBA. I mean, it's remarkable. In, in regards to his foot in the last game, I don't think any of us know how badly it was injured. But, I mean, did you, if you look at that game four, uh, in terms of his career and in terms of just the progression of NBA legends, and they always have like a certain game sometimes they point to, was that one of those games? Uh, oh, absolutely. Just, I'm sorry if you had it. You was about to finish it off. No, no, go ahead. No, no, no. Absolutely, this was one of those games because he knew the magnitude of it. It was a, I mean, they went down three-one. It had been an insurmountable moment to try to overcome. Not saying that it couldn't happen, but it'd been challenging. That situation, that type of performance, it needed be. It needed to be that in order for them to even be to prevail to win that game. And it couldn't have been anything less than that. And seeing him being able to do it, especially coming off of that ankle, not knowing that he was, he was going to be able to, you know, play it. And to see him go out there and just put that all behind in the rear mirror and be able to display the type of performance. And, and I mean, he got 10 rebounds as well. I mean, that is not lightly. Yeah. So it's unbelievable performance. Probably one of the best I've seen, you know, him perform. Well, we know the history you have with that family, and it, you know, it goes back to Charlotte and Toronto, and, and it's a, it's an amazing connection. And for those that want to know more about it, they can they can read about those airplane rides in the book. Uh, it was uh, released in April, April 12th. And Muggsy, uh, we're so glad that you took the time to talk to us today about the book, and um, we hope it continues to be uh, successful for you. Well, thank you guys both. I appreciate you having me on, and, and I look forward to seeing you all hopefully soon and then later yes come back to toronto we'd love to see you okay yeah, thanks thank you so much. thanks bugsy thanks guys <laughs>